Thank you for joining me today for Carl Erickson's Sounds and Words, a podcast with a difference. So by way of introduction, Neil, why don't you tell us about yourself a little bit? How many mysteries have you written now? Oh, uh, seven that are in print. One that's with the publisher, that'll be uh, Crazy Love, which will uh, be coming out probably in about two months. Okay. Then I, I actually have one more that's in a drawer that I I did early on, and I, I think uh, now might be a good time to drag that out and uh, buff it up with what I know now about writing and, uh, yeah, make it publishable. publishable. What were, what were the challenges that you encountered in, in that, um, work? Well, that was my, uh, first attempt. And actually I started it back when I was in college and it was, uh, um, kind of a semi-biographical remembrance of my working undercover, uh, uh, prostitution for two years, vice. Okay. And, um, so, uh, germinated and I wrote it at part-time while I was in school and um, I was having it edited um, when the series that I've written uh, just came to me. Uh, it just uh, just flew into my head and you know I put it down on the computer and, it, and then I so I set the first one aside thinking okay I want to go back in and, and, and smooth it up. Well, right. present day setting for the uh, for the latest novel.
I'd, I'd been off the street for a while. I thought I might be a bit rusty about how uh, real police officers do police work because I was in management. All right. And then, as luck would have it, or fate, I was uh, uh, made the night commander, and I did yeah. that for seven years. So I went to all the, the big calls and uh, talked to all the, the dispatchers and the officers and the sergeants and the lieutenants on how they did police work. And when it, um, my publisher is Kristen Morris. Okay. Morrison. When it, it came time to uh, to write that, it it was a good fit. I was I was ready to write uh, a more modern version of, of how they do police work because the the reality of it, as the detectives told me, there's almost no no mystery in in solving those homicides. It gets down to DNA. They do oh. DNA first, first, last, and everything. You can almost skip the uh, fingerprinting and the the, the, the shoe leather, but oh. I want to write stories that capture good old police work, so that's why I did noir, and I still could tell the story I told of Crazy Love that involves uh, uh, patrol people that didn't have the access to the detective material, and so All they right. did it uh, on their own, and even if you had DNA in the uh, Cobain thing, it's his DNA, what's that going to tell you? Yeah, yeah. Somebody with um, detective skills and analysis to be able to figure out how this thing happened, and that's what I do in that story. Okay. Um, what particular uh, aspect of the Kurt Cobain uh, death investigation was the most surprising to you, would you say? Actually, I watched it. 
studying this, listening to like a, a student in a class, we're gonna you're gonna be tested on it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wondered, well, who who made the first phone call? The one that said, "Go up and put an alarm in the lot." That you know, well, how how come the wire jockey goes to the shed? He knows where to go, and he's there to install an alarm. And then if you if you back all that out and you look at it objectively, it's like, wait a minute, she was supposedly in jail or some kind of a crisis at that time because she thought he was dead. And she was supposedly in California. And she has the wire jockey go to the exact place the body was. Ooh, that's a bit suspicious. Yeah. And now what I think is she, somebody needed to have that body found because uh, it had already been three days. So she called in the work order, and uh, yeah, I think that's another part of the smoking gun. I see, I see. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, is yeah. is the um, Kurt Cobain's widow? Is she still living? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, she'll probably not be too happy with my fictionalized version. Uh, yeah, that's that's what I'm that's what I'm thinking. Um, <laughs> Okay. Yeah, that sounds like that might be wise. I think we're going to stress this is fiction. Exactly. Imagination, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. So it's so you wrote before you joined the Seattle uh, Police Department. You were writing uh, well before that then. Is that right? Well, no, I joined the department when I was 19. I was actually in college. And they recruited me out of it, you know, so the state was sort of being, well, you don't really need a college education to be in police work. Huh. And looked around, there really was, I think the uh, a replacement chief of police had a two-year degree. And uh, oh, wow. so that, well, that was good. So yeah. um, I, it was uh, later in the 90s when I got, I had the number one score on the, the CAMS exam. I got passed. And it was because uh, we had Stanford now, who had a, a doctorate, and uh, they were expecting all the captain candidates to have higher education credentials. And at I that see. point, I just had the two-year degree, so I went back to school to study. But um, actually, I had done a little pleasure writing. I think that would answer your question. Before I joined the police department, um, or while I was in Vietnam, I guess by then technically I was on leave from the department. I had already been a cadet because I started so young. Okay. But uh, I didn't have anything published. Just I would write things to amuse my mother while I was in Vietnam. Oh, okay. Short stories. Were they were they set in the in the uh, in the Vietnam um, environment, or were they set back in yes. the states? Yeah, no, they were set in the Vietnam. And the shipboard environment, uh, I remember one was about, uh, oh, it's, it's really silly now that I look about it, uh, look at it and think back on it, that um, I had lost my hat, so I had almost humanized the hat, like I'd lost a beloved oh, friend, Okay, it was actually only my uh, hat, but I say that as the teaser. Uh, at the end, uh, so I had my mother going as uh, she, she told me. So oh, I see. So so she, that she, sounds kind of uh, 
sounds kind of reminiscent of uh, Tom Hanks' uh, basketball in, uh, what was it, Castaway? Yes, yes, it was like that. Yeah. Um, I had it fallen overboard, and I couldn't go after it. Oh, okay. So I watched it, it go under, come up, go under, and it was like, and somebody else saw it, and he's like, go get it, dive after it, go get it, and we'll pull you back on it. But no, you don't leave <laughs> ship without the captain's yeah. permission, and uh, it wasn't worth it. <laughs> right, right. Oh, man. Yeah, very much like uh, Wilson. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Um, oh, yeah. that's cool. Uh, let's see. How did your? How would you say that your work as a police officer uh, influenced your writing? Um, and if you hadn't become an officer, what do you think you would be um, doing today or what would you be looking back at having well, done? Really at the, the heart of my my existence here. Uh, so remember, I joined early. I um, took two years to leave, went to Vietnam, came back, went to mm-hmm. the academy. They had us um, read Joe Wambaugh's books, The New Centurion and The Blue Knight, while we were in school uh, okay. or at the academy. And when I read those, I thought, man, these are so much better than anything else I've ever read about uh, police work-wise. That this is what I want to do. I want to be like Joe Walbaum, which okay. means I've got to learn to write, and I've got to have some experiences. And so I uh, set about doing both. And uh, when it came to taking my writing classes in college in the '90s, when I finally got back to it, uh, I had a lot of experiences in drunk from. Yeah, yeah. So, but now, what would I be doing if I hadn't gotten the police work? Well. In my deep background um, was the ministry. I had gone okay. to the seminary for a couple of years, okay. and it That's wasn't right. quite right for me, uh, or I wasn't quite right for it. Right. Okay. You, you, you take your pick. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm a, I think as a priest at the seminary would say, probably a little more earth-centered okay. than, okay. than, than our best candidates. So uh, I had that in my background, but... Um, I think I just imagine that the fate will probably have it that I would be in business some kind. I might get a degree in business. I didn't even know when I was, uh, before the police department came a knock. Um, I just assumed I'd get a degree in business. And, uh, I was working in retail, putting myself through school, and I imagine, well, I'll probably start here. Okay, uh, okay. So kind of continuing on the, the theme of faith, um, how would you say that faith, or what part would you say faith provides to a police officer's uh, spiritual and emotional well-being? Does that did that play a part in in your thinking and um, on the force? Uh, you know, my wife and I were just talking about this last night because she was there. She knew me when I went to the police academy fifty years ago, and uh, or close to that. Yeah. on how to solve this. 
yeah. uh, or come up with something that would be not just a number on the wall or check Neil's solve another case, but how I could do something good for this kid and the victim too and society. And so that's where they, they teach me about being the, the priest because I was I would come up with uh, uh, cures for crimes that weren't always statutorily correct. Okay. Like, one, one was, uh, I had a kid that set fire to a portal at the school up on Queen Anne. Uh-huh. And I uh, thought, well, okay, let's, I, I talked to Dad, and Dad, and I'm, I'm convinced the kid's a good kid. He's got a clean record. We've not handled him before, and the dad says, hey, I'm a carpenter. I'll come up this weekend and fix it. So I call a school district just to let them know because they're technically the victim. And they say, oh, oh, no. Oh, no, you can't do it that way. Oh, no, 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 no. You, we've got we've to have bids. We've got to have uh, oh. unions do it. We've got to have blah, blah, blah. It'll be maybe a couple thousand dollars. And I'm looking at, like, the, the steps are scorched. You know, yeah. it's not totally destroyed. And... Uh, so I called the dad back and we're talking. He goes, oh my God, I can't believe this. So I'm looking at, now where's the education here? I'm dealing with the school district and there's a lesson that they could teach us as a teachable moment, but they're missing that. Yeah, so yeah. I work, I work it out with the dad that, um, hey, you get it painted and fixed up this week and I'll come inspect it on Monday and if it's good to go, it's the end of the story. And so, uh, okay. on, on, and he took his kid with him because it was a yeah, yeah. And so I went in on Monday, and he had the steps looking great. And as far as everybody was concerned, that's the end of it. But I got the school district who wants to know, no, what? Where was that uh, portable app that got uh, set on fire? Oh, um, I'll have to get back to you. I, I, can't, I can't find it right now. And so I oh, never man. Oh, and that's so great. We were, we were good to go. They, yeah. They didn't get a criminal record. Mm-hmm. Uh, they fixed it. And I, I'm sure he, he did not commit any more crimes because, you know, that had a very keen interest in keeping him on the straight and narrow. But yeah. Where, where was the lesson? School district versus me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, and that's, that's wonderful. Say, that's the kind of thing that came from my background. Okay, okay. Background. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, Okay, so in in 1973, John Wayne came to Seattle to film McHugh. What do you remember? What do you remember of that time? And did you get to meet the uh, the Duke at any point? I certainly did. Oh, that's Um, amazing. Yeah, he was. uh, We would see him uh, out and about walking around the third floor, which is the main floor for uh, the police department patrol at that time. Okay. Shakes my hand and says, "How you doing, kid?" 
So how long how long was he in the Seattle area filming that? Oh, I'm thinking he was around the building uh, for whatever scenes they were shooting there for a couple weeks. But uh, yeah, there was another movie or two I might be running in my head. Oh, okay. There definitely was a hospital, a hospital scene. There's also, of course, oh, yeah, that yeah. famous r- racing scene underneath the, uh, uh, what is it, I-5 uh, underpass area? Yeah, and then they end up out at Ocean Shores or something like that. I, I, maybe, that might be right. Yeah, there were some, like, leaps in logic or leaps in truth. But yeah, yeah. We, you know, we, we were okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. Um, they, they would, you know, they, they got a lot of street cred out of that. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Um, how, how has police work changed over your career? What have you, what have you seen and what wor- worries you most about the future? One thing you mentioned already was the change in detective work. It sounds like um, D- DNA and, and scientific analysis are, are kind of uh, taking over some of the uh, gumshoe elements that we're all, you know, familiar with from the past. Right. Well, let's deal with that one right off the bat because it has compartmentalized what we do in detectives. Uh, and I'm going to say we, like, in the present tense because I still think I'm there. But okay. I'm retired. I've been, I, I've been out a year. Okay. So, we, <laughs> the, what is it, the greater we. Yeah. Uh, Oh yeah. Uh, it's it's they really got 
Huh. Infinitely better than we were 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Yeah. But it's it's more compartmentalized. The uh, CSI detectives gather DNA, trace uh, evidence and whatnot. Well, I don't, this is where I get in danger of tipping our hand, but uh, the guys on the street have figured this out. The guys who do drive-by shootings. Right. It's changed the way they do them. They used to go by and leave bullet shells all over a place. It was like a pardon the expression, but a dog peeing on the wall. Yeah. They were mark, marking territory with the shells. Now, if they leave the shells, they know the shells are going to come back to get them. So they use revolvers, oh. old-fashioned revolvers, because oh. they can take the shells with them. Okay. So it's, it's changed the way they do uh, their drive-bys. It's changed the way we do our investigations. And uh, when I, I... I remember back, let's say about nine. Right after Cobain, I, they did a study about the efficacy of detectives doing follow-up investigation. And I think it wasn't a particularly high number. You know, it was like, if patrol didn't catch them, uh, they weren't so sure detectives were going to catch them. Okay. Well, when, we, when I became the uh, homicide skipper in, oh, early, what's that? Eight, let's say eight, ten years ago, I was a homicide captain. Okay. Uh, during that time, there were like 26 homicides that year. My people had solved 24 of them. And the wow. one they didn't solve was a double. Um, and there's probably more to that story that hasn't come up yet. But they yeah. did in, during that same year, they solved a cold case or two. So that also would add to the number. And that... And those cold cases, now that's all detective work. Uh, that's okay. All and um, so w- w- the next year after I was replaced, the next captain, uh, I, you know, how he, boy banter, I wanted to see how they were doing now that, because uh, I thought I'd probably have a lucky year. And he said, no, they solved all the cases in that year too. And huh. so we have other agencies calling us and saying, how is it that Seattle was so good at solving these crimes, well, we have less of them, and we solve the ones we have, which puts away the shooters and the active oh, killers, okay. which um, kind of perpetuates the cycle of our being able to work our cases where New York may have so many they can't get to them all. Right, right. That makes sense. Yeah. So, it, I would say we're uh, we're much better now. Uh, I, I would say a little less shoe leather, but... Yeah. Then, uh, but it's you know, still, you know, sounds you know, like it's still there. Yeah, it's, it's still there. You've got to have the, the know-how and the ability to get out there and talk. But, but if you found me yelling at any detectives, it would be, get off your hiney and get out there and talk to people. Okay. Uh, but that's not really too much of a problem with uh, our detectives now are a really good, motivated group. And uh, I can say I also saw that when uh, back when I was the uh, lieutenant. And uh, juvenile, I was recruiting. Uh, I had a uh, chief who politely requested that I saw to it that that uh, unit was integrated because it oh, didn't okay. really look very integrated at that time. I see. And so I brought in a trans, or excuse me, um, uh, different races. A lot. I brought in a lot of women. I brought in people who were openly. Uh, about having a uh, alternate lifestyle. Sure. And 
I understand. Uh, these turned out to be some really good detectives that appreciated the, the lift up. And oh, okay. um, my sol- solving rate, mine, it wasn't mine, it was ours, yeah. uh, went up as compared to the years before. Huh. And uh, hey, this works pretty good. These people are pretty motivated. And uh, I, I think I see more of that as we continue on my. When I left, um, you know, pardon me, it's hard to go because you think, oh, this department's going to fall apart without me. Oh, but yeah. The reality is, no, it's not. They won't remember your name two weeks from now. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, I had really good faith in the, uh, the department, the direction it was heading in. And uh, I'm going to say two things here. Um, I had been the commander of internal affairs, and I got to pass out spankings. So yeah. Yes, yes, I do. Uh, as a commander at night. 
okay. to be there to make those kind of decisions. Okay. Wow. Yeah, the uh, the incident of arrest, arresting that nurse was certainly a public relations disaster for that department. <laughs> well, yeah, and it just, it was like, you what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, he wanted to prove his point. Uh, no, you don't. No, yeah, you don't. yeah. Right, right. If you feel that bad about it, write it up and we'll see what the prosecutor says. But exactly. you're not dragging her out of the hospital. She needs to work here tonight. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, there was an, when we when we met at the uh, police department a few uh, years ago. There was an expression that you used about um, girding one's loins uh, about officers <laughs> responding to tragic incidents, and I, I thought it was I thought it was interesting. Um, what does what does that mental preparation mean to the uh, success of an officer's uh, you know career? How important is that kind of mental preparation? It's extremely important. Um, I, I also listened to uh, John Tesh, and I, it might have been him, or it might have been a talk show, or it might have been something I read that talked about officers uh, who do best, 911 responders in all, uh, general, had prep time. They had time to get hurt your loins on the way to the call. You're already expecting this. So that's why having good flow of information from communications is very helpful because the officer knows, okay, sounds like there's going to be some hurt people. Sounds yeah. like there might be some dead people. Sounds like there might be some dead kids. The hardest one probably. Yeah, yeah. So if you've got a chance to think about that, as opposed to the guy who's in the school when bullets start flying and he's sitting there and it's like, oh my God, oh my God, what do I do now? Oh my God. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope that I helped move that along. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I recently, just to kind of, a little bit of a change of subject, I recently had a discussion online with some, with some fellows um, over um, private individuals' ability to um, use uh, deadly force. And it was it, the discussion was was centering on uh, folks with concealed carry permits who were facing, let's say, counter protesters with um, the particular case that that was cited was um, a chainsaw without a chain. And my, my argument was that deadly force was not appropriate because the uh, threat was not was not. Um, to that point of, uh, you know, that being proportional uh, response. Do you do you agree with that, or what else would you add for folks that are are whose minds are, you know, kind of thinking about that um, the, those kinds of questions? Okay, let me see if I got this right. Was somebody activating a chainsaw and pretending they were a slasher? He, that that is that is that is correct. They well, they weren't necessarily slashing with it, but they they were at, they were running it, activating it, and um, uh, it was at a protesters protesting protesters kind of situation. Oh, oh, oh boy, that is those, those kind of things just terrify me Right. Yes. Yes. On a lower level in a parking garage. And I'm not the only one that's with all these years of fast drawn. I'm incredibly fast. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that aside, I think some of those things kids do for, because they want a video to get uh, on 
YouTube or something, they better think twice about it. Yeah. Maybe even three or four times because they're dangerous. Yeah, exactly. He also touched on something open carry, concealed carry. Yeah. Uh, a message I would like to get to people about that is, uh, of course, I see that. Um, I'm into training. I also see uh, bulges and codes. Yeah, uh, yeah. That makes great sense. You've named a couple, but do you have any classic authors that you also like, like uh, Dorothy Sayers, for example, or Sir um, Arthur Conan, Conan Doyle? Any any people like that that stand out? Oh, okay. uh, I enjoyed his uh, his quite a bit, and 
Okay. Uh, Michael Conley is probably my current favorite. Uh, I'm reading, I've read all his, and I've got his new one waiting top of the stack. Yeah. Me to read. Um, Ed McBain, I'm reading him right now. And I, I'd heard about him before, but I hadn't read him, and I thought, I really like the way uh, he tells the story. The, uh, the, the dialogue is really good. Okay. With him. It's very New York-y, but... Yeah. Uh, similar thing in the on some of his some of his writing um which of which of your novels is your favorite would you say (laughs) it's usually the one that you're writing right yeah yeah i realize that Oh, yeah. Oh, 
there looking up the magic and they thought, well, i got to convince you, Carl, that I've got this right. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and then when it comes down to the writing part, all of that magic got boiled down to about two pages. But oh. I, had to, I had to do the research. I had yeah, to you had to know it as the author. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and be credible with it. Yeah. But um, there's a subplot that I had a lot of fun with in that one, and that was uh, I tied in the uh, demise of the Russian royal family. Oh, and okay. It, you'll have to read the story to see how that mm-hmm. works, but let's just say maybe some people that were involved uh, might have ended up over here. Uh, and uh, I really enjoyed that part of the story. And um, we had a immigrant at work who was Russian, and I had her, hey, check my Russian. <laughs> oh, okay. A little bit in the book. But uh, when she got back to me, she said, we weren't allowed to learn what happened to the Russian royal family. Mm. And I said, well, the way I was brought up, we didn't get to learn anything about Russia. Yeah, so yeah. That makes two of us. So I had to really study that to get it right. And I, I also uh, did a really good job with uh, the death of Rasputin, which is referenced in that. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so he. Uh, they were, as I remember, they... Uh, they tried multiple times to uh, kill him under using different methods or something along those yeah. lines. He died hard. <laughs> yes, he did. Yeah, and then when he, uh, they thought he was dead, he, and they set him on fire, his muscles contracted, and he sat up, and they thought he's still not dead. Oh. It was, it was a pretty tough go. So, yeah. Uh, so that, anyways, that, uh, that's probably my favorite, but then it's, oh, every once in a while I'll get nostalgic and I'll go back and look through it. It's like, oh man, I don't really remember um, the process for writing Thick of Thieves and that, that was really enjoyable. And it was a surprise to me. I didn't have it plotted out. I oh, yeah. Was, uh, uh, I had a, an image of uh, uh, a dad dying in uh, his kid's arms, which actually is Al O'Brien, who's uh, turned out to be uh, a house representative for the state and huh. told me that story when his dad that his dad had died in his arms oh and that was that was the seed thought for me okay and, okay um then I tied in the um uh, uh Lindbergh kidnapping and um that one Ann Rule weighed in on it um and then uh, another author Lowen Foss uh where'd you get the idea for that yeah that's pretty good well <laughs> you know yeah, there you go. There you go. Wow. Um, was uh, Thick as Thieves perhaps your most difficult book to write because it was your first? No, uh, well, let's get back to the one that was in the drawer. Now, that one I was working on while I was in school. And okay. It had, um, I, I think after I did Thick as Thieves, I had that under my belt. That helped. And that might have gone so well because I'd learned a lot of the lessons writing the first one. Okay. So then paradoxically, after I'd written uh, Thick of Thieves, I had the skills now to go back and work on the one that's in the drawer and uh, dress it up. And I've had, oh, yeah. I've had a couple people read it, but the, at that time, it was written in the more in the modern era. And again, I had that agreement with the chief. Mm. But I also didn't want to confuse my readers with two different genres going up at the same time. Oh, right, right. But, yeah, and that's not really a big deal as I look back on it. But yeah, uh, so I, I put it away, and 
characters, and that's just about it. Okay. Um, I was trying to tie that somebody in the police department in that to my Alan Stewart Bear to War characters, and I thought, yeah, you're working too hard on that. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay, so what's the what's the title on the um, on that particular work again? What's the working title? Uh, the one that I'm yeah that you're there. working on. Uh, crazy love. Um, that's, that's the one. The one in the drawer. Yeah, exactly. Well, I look forward to, to reading that one. Um, okay. Well, so I understand. My father in law read it and he keeps wondering, well, why don't you bring that out? Well, the timing wasn't right, but now it might be. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that'd be great. Um, okay, so I understand you have something special in store um, on Father's Day. Can you, can you tell our listeners about that a little bit? Understand, but it, it's it it's got to be told. <laughs> well, yeah. If you don't tell anybody, nobody's gonna know. So yeah, exactly. I, it's like, well, what did I do? And he said, well, you uh, graduated with honors, and mm-hmm. you uh, you know you became a captain on the police department. You were there fifty years. Mm-hmm. That's all true. And you're, you've had several novels published, and I've also been published academically too. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, uh, short story just got picked up here last year, which. That was really cool, and, but it's not one I can tell you about where you can go buy it. Yeah. If you're a professor, you might subscribe to this professorial uh, link that has it. I so, see. Yeah, anyways, uh, the UW has got a couple printed copies on there. 
Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, Neil, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to me today. And it's been a wonderful conversation, and I hope we can do it again sometime. Well, that sounds great. All right. I'll let you go. You take care. All right. Thanks, Carl. Okay. Bye-bye.